We are continuing in the book of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 9. One of the great things about going through the books of the Bible is that you get the context in which each of these passages occur. And some of these passages require context. We're going to look at a particularly interesting little account this morning that occurs right after the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has taken the three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, and they've gone up onto the mount, and they have there seen Jesus transformed before them. The exchange occurs between Jesus and Moses and Elijah, not to re-preach last week's sermon, but that's an interesting exchange all its own. That event occurs, and now the time has come to come down off the mountain. We all want the mountaintop experience. Oh, Lord, please take us to the top of the mountain, right? And we hope to get up there and to see the face of God. It's, wouldn't that just be great? Okay, but the fact is you have to come down off the mountain. Moses went up and saw God on the mountain, but you have to come down off the mountain. So, having been up there for just a few days, I I don't think Jesus is up there with his disciples any more than two or three days at the most. Uh, So these events transpire, and picking up in Luke chapter 9, verse 37, on the next day when they came down from the mountain. So here they go. They come down from the mountain. We love that mountaintop experience, but now we're coming down. A large crowd meets Jesus, and a man from the crowd shouts, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And his spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him even as it leaves him. I begged your disciples to cast him out, and they couldn't. Hmm. Interesting, right? Here we have a situation where we have just seen God bring forth his son, right? This is my son, listen to him. We come down off the mount and here we have another situation with another man with his son. God is showing that his son has the power to defeat sin and death and the devil. And here we have another father who has no power to do anything about the distressing situation that's occurred to his son. We go from the height of spiritual strength to the depths of just total spiritual impotence. This this guy can't do anything for his son. He comes to Jesus. Mark also records this event, and he gives us a little more detail. So let me read the account in Mark. He's going to bring some things out that Luke doesn't mention. So Mark 9, verse 14, when they came back to the disciples, Jesus, they went back down to the disciples, they see a large crowd around them, that is around the disciples, and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they saw him, they were amazed. Thought maybe you disappeared, right? They're amazed. And um, hmm, they began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What were you discussing? You know, with my disciples. What exactly? There's some big discussion going on over here. What was the discussion? What what seems to be the issue here? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, 
I brought my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. He can't speak. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. He's, he's got spiritual issues and he also apparently has physical issues as well. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Hmm. So when we look at the account in Mark, along with the account in Luke, and we kind of put them together, we realize that there's a little more going on here than simply just a distraught father. He is distraught. He's, he's, he's concerned about his son. But there's also an argument going on. And there's an argument going on with the scribes and with the crowd and the nine disciples that have been left behind. Jesus has taken the leadership of the twelve. He's gone, Peter's gone, James is gone, John is gone, and this just leaves the other nine. And so the other nine are left here, and Jesus has probably taken them into the mountains to kind of get a break, to get them away from all the crowds, only to have the crowds find them. And here they are, and they've now brought this particular situation before them, and it's a difficult situation. This is is a hard situation. And the man, initially, he, you might get the impression that he's just kind of pleading for his son. But when you read the additional account, you realize this guy has come to the disciples and demanded that they cast this demon out of his son. And oh, by the way, they couldn't do it. Um, no kindness, no humility, no actually asking. He's demanding. He's shown up here and this is how this ought to go. And he, he's ordering around, I've, I've, I've got my miracle, and I've ordered it, and your disciples better produce it. Hmm, is, is that really how this goes? Is that, is that exactly how our relationship with God is? We just come to God and demand that he do stuff for us? Uh, this is a confrontational kind of meeting here. This is, this is not a situation where... There's kindness and compassion and understanding. This is a hard situation. This is a, these people have run into the nine disciples or have, they're looking for Jesus. Where's Jesus? Uh, the disciples are like, mm, you know, he's, he's up the mountain. We're not, I don't know. He went up there with Peter and James and John and we don't really know where he is. And so they're looking for Jesus and, okay, we need you to cast this, this demon out. Well, as we'll see uh, later, uh, they will say to Jesus, why couldn't we cast him out? And he'll say, well, this was a difficult situation. Uh, not all, that we know that the angels have various um, stations. There are stronger angels and weaker angels. And the demonic forces are fallen angels. So there's every reason to think that they have stronger and weaker demons. This is a particularly difficult one. And Jesus will say to them, this one doesn't come out except by prayer. Which is, by the way, why Jesus is constantly taking his disciples aside and trying to pray with them. And the disciples are constantly falling asleep while he's doing that. It's like, I'm trying to tell you guys, you've got to pray more. If you prayed more, this would not happen like this. But you know, some lessons are kind of harder to get than others. But you can imagine that now with Jesus and the three major leaders gone, 
They come to them and say, heal my son. And uh, you, you can imagine there's a little bit of looking around like, okay, well, who's going to take care of this? All right, I'll, I'm it. And come to find out this is actually a strong demon. And the first guy to give it a go, it doesn't work so well. And so the next guy gives it a go, and it doesn't work well for him either. And you can see the nine are probably, and, and of course the crowd, they're not sympathetic. There's, there's no, oh, come on, guys, you can do this. Oh, no, there, there's no, oh, you can do this. This crowd is like, who do you guys think you are? And here you are trying to tell us Jesus is the Messiah, and you're supposedly out here operating on the authority of Jesus. And we know that the scribes, their entire discussion all the time is how Jesus isn't who he says he is. Who does this guy think he is anyway? That's the major question of the scribes. And so here they are, and they've come right at the disciples. It's like, okay, we had one setback. We had one situation that kind of took us by surprise, and you could see the minute one person didn't do it that next thing you know, the failure kind of feeds on itself, and before you know it, all of, all of them have like, I, I don't know, I guess we can't do this. Okay, well, the minute you get to where you think you can't do it, mm, yep, this is probably pretty good, you probably can't do it. Um, so Jesus shows up in the midst of this. Here the scribes are arguing with them. Here the disciples are kind of defensive because, well, it didn't really work. And they actually hadn't run into a demon who was quite this powerful before. And Jesus had given them all the authority they need. He will say to them, look, if you just had the faith of a grain of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. I gave you guys everything you needed to get this done, but... You know, they're trying to grow in their faith too, right? They're, they've got to grow into who they are as we are all needing to grow into who we are. It's part of the lesson of this account is the disciples really need to step up here and appropriate what God has given them. They failed in that. Okay, life goes on, right? We all fail. Who hasn't failed? The only person around who doesn't fail is Jesus. That's it. And by the way, he won't fail in this one either. So... Jesus now responds to the father and to the crowd. The father has come to him and said, you know, I brought my son to your disciples and I couldn't cast the demon out of him. When you read the response of Jesus, you might initially be a little taken aback. You might think, ooh, this doesn't really sound like Jesus. Like, isn't he kind and long-suffering and compassionate? And, And here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said, verse 41, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Whoa. Oh, my. That's, um, really? Did Jesus actually say that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And this is why, by the way, it's important that you preach through a book. It's important that you don't just grab this verse out of the middle of everything and kind of go, well, I don't really know what, I don't know. Maybe Jesus was having a bad day. Jesus never has bad days, right? Jesus is not sinning here. Jesus is not acting inappropriately. Jesus is not at a place where I guess even Jesus has had it. Uh, Jesus has come to a place where his ministry in Galilee, this is it. He's done. This is the last miracle he will do in Galilee. Uh, Luke records 13 miracles that Jesus does in Galilee. Um, He did many more, but Luke actually records 13 of them. This is the last one. This is it. This is the end of the Galilean ministry. And at this point, Jesus is done with Galilee. 
It's like, really? Seriously? I've been here now for three years, give or take. For that long, Jesus has been in Galilee. Somewhere in that vicinity for, for years now, he has been there. He has healed every sickness. He has cast out every demon. He has given sight to the blind and the lame walk and the deaf hear and the dumb speak. And he's turned water into wine and he's, he's raised people from the dead. And when he comes down off the mountain, does he run into a friendly crowd who has repented in sackcloth and ashes and begged God's forgiveness and asked him to please be their Lord and Savior? No, no, this crowd is not repentant. This, this, crowd, is, this crowd isn't even friendly. This is a hostile crowd of people who are argumentative and who are angry and frustrated. When Moses went up into the wilderness and went up into the mountain, took the nation, he goes up on the mountain. He's up there. He actually sees God. Remember, God shows his backside to him. Moses comes down off the mount. His face is glowing. He's seen God. He's seen the glory of God. And what does he come down to? Does he come down to a group of Israelites who are all thankful that God has rescued them from the Egyptians and has, and has taken care of their slavery issue and is feeding them manna and is just so wonderful and isn't it great and we just can't wait for Moses to come down and give us the word of God? Oh, that's, that's not what he comes down to. He comes down to a group of people who have gone to Aaron and said, we don't know about this, Moses. Make us some gods who, will, who, who we can worship. And so Aaron gathers, all right, well, give me your gold earrings. Everybody tosses in their gold earrings. And he, he throws it in the fire and makes a golden calf. And when Moses asks him about it, he actually says, well, I don't know, I threw the gold in the fire and this calf walked out. Oh, Aaron, please. So, and, and then it's like, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. So Jesus goes up on the mount with a few disciples we find here that, that Jesus brings about the glory of God. Great parallel here, right? These are great parallels. This is part of the life of Jesus. This is why in Matthew, out of Egypt have I called my son. When Joseph flees out of Bethlehem to get away from Herod, he goes into Egypt. And then God calls Jesus out of Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son. This, this, is, this is because, like the nation, the nation is 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness. The nation succumbs to the temptation, Jesus doesn't come to the, succumb to the temptation. And here, once again, we have the mount. Jesus goes up on the mount and displays God. Just like Moses went up on the mount and saw the display of God. And when Jesus comes down off the mount, here again is the Israelites. And just like Moses, what are they? They're complaining. They're dissatisfied. There's disorder and confusion and literal demonic oppression. These people, and this is a major part of this passage, is everyone, everyone thinks, well, I would, un- I would see my own generation with a, with a clear eye. I can, I can perceive the times in which I live. And if God were really at work in the times in which I lived, I'd recognize it. 
Jordan just got done reading Jesus' rebuke of the nation in Matthew 23. They said, oh, if we lived in the time of Moses, we would have repented. We wouldn't kill the prophets. Oh, no, not us. We, we, would, we would not do the things that they did. Why, if God were at work in our lives and God were actually doing anything around here, we'd respond properly. You think, is that right? And the obvious point here is that you're not doing that at all. You guys now, at Jesus is going to leave Galilee. It's going to take him a little bit, but he's, he's now making his way to Jerusalem for the last time, where they'll crucify him. So Galilee, woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the mighty works that have been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but not you guys. Here you guys have had miracle after miracle after miracle, work of God after work of God after work of God, and you somehow think that, oh, well, if we saw the work of God in our midst, we would repent. Really? Because a greater than Moses is here. A greater than Elijah is here. And by the way, he's coming down off the mountain. Jesus, the very Son of God, is coming down off the mountain. They all think, well, if Moses came back, we'd, we'd repent. Oh, yeah. You, you think so? Guess what? The person who's coming down off this mountain to greet you just got done talking to Moses. Literally. He just stood up on the mountain to talk to Moses and Elijah. And now he's down here because he's here because he's greater than Moses and he's greater than Elijah. We just got done having the disciples walk into the cloud and Peter's like, you know, we should build three tabernacles here. (laughs) Peter, what are you thinking? And of course, the voice comes out, this is my son. Listen to him. Not Moses, not Elijah, Jesus. And here greater than Moses and Elijah, is coming down off the mount. Are they repenting? Is there any repentance here? Is there any humility here? Is there any, oh, isn't it great? God has sent his Savior to us down off this mountain. Wow, we cannot wait to fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him and thank him for having come here and to be our Messiah and to rule over us. Is that the reaction Jesus gets? No, he doesn't get any such reaction as that. All he gets is is people who are angry and upset and grumbling and arguing and giving his disciples a hard time. They've heard the teaching of Jesus. They've, They've heard what Jesus has to say. They've heard the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was given in Galilee. It was right there on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus gave the sermon. This group of people have heard the Sermon on the Mount. Do they believe it? No. They take the things that Jesus said and they twist them. And they turn them. This should have been the most repentant generation of any generation Israel ever produced. They're not. (laughs) They're not. They're not repentant at all. They're argumentative. They're unbelieving. They don't believe. 
They come to the disciples, and the minute they don't get exactly what they want, they get into a big argument and start talking about who Jesus is and who he says he is. So Jesus says to them what he says to them. You unbelieving, instead of being the, the generation of faith, you are the generation of no faith. That's what this word is, by the way. You know, a theist is someone who believes in God, right? And a theist is someone who doesn't believe in God. Well, instead of the word faith, instead of being the generation of faith, you are the generation, you put an A in front of that, you're the generation of no faith. And that's who they are. You're unbelieving. You're the generation with no faith at all. What, what is with you people? How could you possibly not believe? You've seen all of these miracles. You've seen the hand of God. These were not miracles that Moses did. These were not miracles that Elijah did. Jesus has, and his disciples, have been performing at will miracles to cure any illness, to take care of any problem that anyone has of a physical nature. Jesus has just, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Born blind? It's fine, we'll take care of that. Funeral? Wait, this funeral's over. Sorry. Um, We're just done. Stop mourning. Uh, The corpse is about to get up. I mean, Jesus actually did that. Do they believe? No. Not so much. No. They're an unbelieving generation. This is why when Jesus comes down off the mount, although it might seem somewhat out of character for Jesus to answer and say, you unbelieving and perverted generation, it's like, whoa, whoa. But really, in context, it's amazing he didn't say this much sooner. It's astounding Jesus didn't say this six months ago. This group of people should have heard this a long time ago. Jesus is waiting to the end of his time here where they should be coming to him and saying, Oh, Lord, we we are wicked and sinful and rebellious, and we have not turned our hearts to God And we have not repented. And is it possible that you can somehow find a place in your kingdom for us? (laughs) No, no, no. There's nothing like that. There's not even a resemblance of that. We'll see in a second that they marvel at the works of God. And we'll see what Jesus has to say about that. But he calls them unbelieving. And he also calls them a perverted generation. Now this word perverted, we tend to use this word in our culture, and it carries a particular connotation that it doesn't carry it at all here. This is, this is not any kind of a reference to, any kind of anything physical here. This is, what's happening is this word means that you've taken the truth and you've twisted it. You've turned it, which is what to pervert something is. We would use this term like a perversion of justice. Instead of giving justice, you've actually given injustice. Instead of doing the right thing, you've actually turned it around to do the wrong thing. You are spinning around and around and around. You are taking the words of God and you are turning them and twisting them. And you're giving them the exact opposite meaning of what they should actually have. Instead of ascribing to Jesus to being the very son of God, the scribes and Pharisees have decided that Jesus is actually doing all of these works empowered by the devil. Seriously? You're... You're accusing Jesus of operating by the power of the devil? That's perversion. That is to take the clearer, 100 absolute, no questions asked, work of God and ascribe it to the devil. 
I mean, how much more turned around can you get? So, the, And when Jesus says this, this is a term which should have kind of resonated with them a little bit because this term gets used in the Old Testament quite often. Numbers 14.27. God says, see if this doesn't sound familiar, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. How long am I going to bear with you guys? You guys are over here grumbling against me. You complained against me. Deuteronomy 32.5, they have acted corruptly towards him. They are not his children because they are of, of their defect. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32.20, then he said, I will hide my face from them. And I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. Sound familiar? And it should have sounded familiar to them, because they claim to be, oh, such great disciples of Moses. Okay, so when Jesus calls them a faithless and perverse generation, they should have gone, oh, wait a minute, that's exactly what Moses called the people in the wilderness. Hmm, you think. Yeah, that is in fact exactly what Jesus, what Moses called the people in the wilderness. And you guys, that, that generation, you should have woken up to the fact that, oh, wait a minute, we too have seen all the works of God. And instead of repenting, we, although we claimed we wouldn't be like our fathers, we're actually just like them. We're actually acting exactly like them. They killed the prophets, we build the tombs to them. But, but we wouldn't kill the prophets. Oh, really? You wouldn't kill the prophets. Hmm. They should be in sackcloth and ashes. They should be coming to Jesus, and they should be begging him to please forgive them. No such thing. No, no such event. This, this is not what's happening. They, instead of believing, are unbelieving. And so they have now taken the true word of God and they have turned it around. This word perversion, much like the word no faith, this word perversion is made up of two words. To turn around. To turn through, actually. They have, they have turned, but they've just turned through the truth right back around to where they're back into error. They have turned around and around and around. They have twisted this around. But the actual word, the root word, turn, is actually a great word. This is the word that we get conversion from. You need to convert. You need to repent. You need to turn to God. In fact, this term is used. Luke will use it. In Luke 1.16, he will turn, speaking of John the Baptist, he will turn many sons of Israel back to God. That's the root word of this word perversion. The word perversion is to turn the wrong way, to turn so far that you've spun around and around, you've twisted everything. But actually, you do need to turn. You need to turn from your sin and turn to God. Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you, that, when you're, that your faith may not fail. When, Jesus knows Peter's going to deny him. And I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And, and when once you have turned again, don't worry, you'll, you'll turn correctly. 
um, you'll strengthen your brothers. The Jerusalem Council, they use this word. They say it's, it's their judgment that they no longer trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God. This, this idea of conversion, turn to the Lord, turn back to God. This is exactly what conversion is, is to just turn to God. But instead of, instead of being converts, they're perverts in the biblical sense of that term. So they have actually taken the truth of God, and instead of turning to God, you've turned around and around and around, and you've, you've ended up making this a situation where you have got Jesus actually performing these works, according to you, by the devil. You're kidding me. Uh, nope, that's exactly where they end up. So Jesus says, bring your son to me. Let's, let's, let's take care of this. Now, the disciples, it's not like they haven't done miracles. He's, he sent them all out. He sent them out in pairs, and they have done all kinds of miracles up to this point. But Jesus is going to show, part of this account as well, is to show that Jesus is greater than any of his disciples, and he's greater than any demon. Even a demon that his own disciples had difficulty casting out, Jesus isn't going to have any problem at all. Verse 42, while he was still approaching, the man is bringing his son. He's, he's kind of get his, the demon slams into the ground and throws him into a convulsion. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. When Jesus, Jesus just does it, it's, it's not like it's that hard. Now, when the boy screams, this is actually where we get the word crazy. It's, it's, and this convulsion is spastic. That's where we get that from. Mark, again, provides us with a little more detail. So back to Mark chapter 9, they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus speaks to the father and says, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, from, from childhood. He's been a small child. And in fact, it's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water, trying to destroy him. If you can do anything, take, take pity on us and help us. I mean, the guy is desperate, even though he's demanding from the disciples. He's, and Jesus says, if you can, what do you mean if I can? What kind of a statement is that? What do you mean if I can? All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and began saying, I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was really making their way over there, um, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and don't enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him on to, into terrible convulsions, he came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. Gives him back to the Father. Some interesting things that we might want to think about here. When we look at demon possession, uh, and we could spend quite a while on that. I'm not going to, but it should be noted, though. um, Demon possession was very uncommon in the Old Testament. was very common while Jesus was here on earth in the Gospels. But once Jesus departs, it again becomes quite uncommon. 
it would appear that the demons have pulled out all their stops and are going to do everything they can to thwart the work and the ministry of Jesus, if at all possible. It doesn't work, but they're trying. They're really making an effort here, an extreme effort. When we think about demon possession, we might be tempted to think, well, anybody who's demon-possessed, they must be wicked, horrible, unbelievably godless people, you know, occultists who are out here chopping the heads off goats or something, you know, in the middle of the moonlight on October 31st or whatever. Um, You know, really? Uh, This is a child. This is just a kid. This is... He is afflicted with a demon. It's not like he wanted this. It was not like he was asking for this. And the father, the father is bringing, it's not like he's some occultist out here worshiping Satan on the side. This guy has come to Jesus and his disciples. He's got attitude issues. But he has come to get his son healed. I'm here to get this fixed. This isn't like he's happy about this. He's not happy about this. No one is happy about this, including the young boy, who apparently has other physical issues on top of being oppressed by this demon. So demon oppression here, this is, this is a situation where there's no... I mean, there's, It's not like this kid's some serial killer, right? You know, some moral degenerate. He's a kid. He, he didn't have any opportunity to do any of this. His father's not some witch doctor here on the sides and not telling anybody, there has been an outbreak of demon possession in response to the arrival and ministry of Jesus. And Jesus has gone around now and has fixed it. He's shown that he has power to cast out the demons. So the question does arise, well, why, why couldn't the disciples do it? And I've already hinted to it, but it's really clear. Um, when he goes into the house in Mark, Mark 9, he goes into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, saying, how, how, how could we not cast it out? I mean, how, why didn't this work? And he said to them, this kind comes out, uh, cannot come out by anything but prayer. Which, as I mentioned, oh, by the way, guys, this is why Jesus is constantly trying to take you aside and pray with you. And you constantly go aside with him and fall asleep. I mean, Jesus is praying, the disciples are sleeping. It, it's going to happen, it happens all the time. Jesus will say to them in the garden, look, you need to pray that you don't enter into temptation. And, th- and then he goes a, a little bit away and he prays and he comes back and there they are sound asleep again. It's like, you guys. Um, the spirit is willing, the, the flesh is weak. They're not praying. Their relationship with God is not strong enough, and it needs to be. They need to pray more. They need to have more faith in God. They need to appropriate what God has given them. Now, I don't think God has given us, by the way, the the authority to cast out demons. It was right on par with giving blind eyes sight and deaf ears hearing and dumb mouth speaking. This is a first-class miracle to be able to cast out demons. that This was something that only Jesus and his apostles did. It's, it's, this is not something we should be doing. Uh, the book of Ephesians, you look at the church at Ephesus, they had a problem. In fact, they ended up burning all of their works of magic. This is a place where the goddess Diana was greatly worshipped and where there was clear occult activity. And yet, when 
Paul writes his letter to them, there's just one spot at the end where he says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to resist the devil. And having put on the full armor of God, you will in fact stand against all the wiles of the devil. He doesn't talk about any kind of casting out or rebuking them or any of that kind of crazy stuff. You just put on the full armor of God and you'll resist the devil and get everything done you need to get done. Why couldn't they cast him out? And he says, well, they, they only come out through prayer. And you guys don't pray enough. That's what it comes down to. Uh, he says to them in Matthew, same, the same account occurs in Matthew 17. And the disciples come to him and, the, and they ask the same question. And Matthew, he says, because of the littleness of your faith. I mean, I'm telling you, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, move from here and it should move. And nothing will be impossible for you. But you guys lost your faith. He got in a hard situation. It was hostile. They brought the, they brought the child. The difficulties, it was, it was a hard situation. I wasn't there. Peter, James, and John weren't there. And you guys just kind of didn't really exercise the faith you should have been exercising. And it's because you're not praying. You pray more. You have more faith. Now, okay, so Jesus, Jesus does. And, of course, Jesus just cast the demon out. There's no demon Jesus isn't going to cast out. There, there are no demons out there that Jesus can't, with no effort at all, and once again, no effort at all, rebukes the demon, out he goes. Oh, he screams and yells and hollers, hollers before he goes, but he goes. Because no demon can resist the power of Jesus. So verse 43, back to Luke 9. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And they should be, by the way. They should be amazed at the greatness of God. They should be amazed that Jesus is greater than any of his disciples. Jesus is greater than any demon they bring to him, even really hard ones, even really powerful ones. But while everyone was marveling at what Jesus was doing, he turns to his disciples and had some private words just for them. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This same group of people, this same crowd, which at this moment is all going, oh, the great works of God. Yeah, yeah, they acknowledge it's the great work of God, but there's no repentance. They're not turning to God. They're they're not submitting to the baptism of John or the baptism of the disciples of Jesus. They're not repenting. Oh, yeah, for the moment, the crowd is all going, woo, look at that, what a miracle, isn't that something? Yeah, oh, that's great, yeah, oh, it's... But there's no, there's no change of heart. There's no repentance. There's no looking and saying, this is our Messiah. This is the one that God has sent to us. We should be falling at his feet. No, no, this, no, that's none of that. In fact, Jesus says to them, be careful. Don't turn yourself over to the crowd. This exact same crowd. Sure, it's easy right now because the crowd is saying, oh, the great works of God. But in a moment, it won't be long, guys. This same crowd will be out for my blood. And they'll be screaming, crucify him. Same crowd. Same group. Because that's what the crowd will be calling then. And Well, these are folks who just go with the crowd. So if the crowd's saying, great work of God, that's what they say. If the crowd says, crucify him, that's what they'll say. 
be careful about entrusting yourself over to these people because there's been a momentary great thing. Uh, it's been a while. You remember when September 11th happened and those planes flew into the World Trade Center. And suddenly, here in America, our churches were full of people. For a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Oh, we need to turn back to God. Where are they all? Where are they? Um, We need to be careful just because something happens. And people seem to turn to God for a little bit. The crowd is fickle. But, verse 45, the disciples, they didn't really understand this statement. What's What's he talking about? You can see them all looking at one another like, did you get that? And it was concealed from them. So they just, they couldn't perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. What do you mean? What do you mean you're going to be turned over to the hands of men? What exactly does that mean? And he's been telling this for a while now, right? As soon as Peter confessed, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, don't tell anybody that because I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. But don't worry, I'll raise again from the dead. And they sat around and talked about it. I wonder what he means, raised from the dead. I wonder what he means by that. So you do kind of feel bad for these guys. Uh, They'll get their act together, by the way. By Pentecost, with the Spirit of God indwelling them, their eyes will be opened to what the Old Testament was talking about, and they'll suddenly see what all the Law and the Prophets talked about. And like the guys on the Emmaus Road, as Jesus walks with them, suddenly... Their hearts will burn within them. They will go, look, at here's Jesus. He's, he's back here. Moses talked about him. And Isaiah talked about him. And Jeremiah talked about him. Look, the Psalms talk about him. Everywhere we look, Jesus is all over the place. Look, we don't have time to serve tables. We need to pray and study the scriptures. You guys serve the tables. We go, this is amazing. That's what happens. The Spirit of God indwells them. The blindness is taken off. But for the moment... They're kind of in a, they, they, they're following Jesus, but they've got to grow into it. It's okay to grow in our faith. It's okay. God is patient with us. Jesus is gracious to them. I don't think Jesus is rebuking them. I, this rebuke is not directed to his disciples. They're in a tough spot, and they, they you know, the nine, they, they didn't do so well, but mm, it's okay, they'll grow. And Jesus, Jesus is watching out for them. He's, he's, he's taking care of them. I don't think this rebuke is directed at them at all. It's directed at this group of people. They should have gone to the disciples and said, if you could, would it be possible for you to do this? And when it didn't work, they should have said, well, we, you know, we, we'll pray for you. Let's all pray. You know what I mean? The crowd should have been supportive. They weren't. They weren't. And that's why Jesus rebukes them. This is it. He's done. He's, he's moving from here. He's moving out of the Galilean region. There is a moment to repent. There is a moment to turn to God. There is a time. There is an opportunity. There is a, there is a, a time and a place. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. This was their time, and they, they didn't take it. They didn't take it. And it, it just wasn't open to them forever. The door was open. The moment was there. And they didn't. They didn't. So, Jesus rebukes them. You, you unbelieving generation. What's, what's with you guys? Will you not believe? You've seen the very works of God, but they didn't. So God is faithful. Jesus is faithful to his disciples. He takes care of them. They continue to preach the message. 
and we should be faithful to preach the message. But you know, if you feel like, well, I don't know, I've shared the gospel with neighbors, I've shared the gospel with my friends and my relatives, and I mean, I've shared the gospel with people, but it just, I don't know, it's just, it's not working. Okay, well, Jesus knows exactly what you mean by that, right? He just, look how long he spent with this group of people doing all those miracles. So you can go to Jesus, okay, you can pray to him, say, oh, Lord, please be gracious to my, to my friends, to my neighbors, to my relatives. Please open their eyes. Please let them see the gospel. Um, and Jesus will completely understand that prayer. And we should pray more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do, in fact, do great works. That you, Lord, have power over the demons. You, you aren't in any way thwarted just because some demon gives the disciples a hard time. Lord, we thank you that you love us and care for us and that you give us this clear word. I do pray for our nation. I pray that we would see repentance, that we as a nation would turn back to you, that we would be faithful to declare the truth. May we endure. May we stand up. May we be lights in a dark place. And may we not hesitate to speak your truth. Lord, help us to be faithful even if our nation is faithless and perverted and refuses to turn to you. May we boldly stand for you anyway. And may you give us the strength to do so. Continue to make us a praying people. May we look to you. And may you give us all we need to serve you in a dark, dark world. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.